This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. First Peter chapter 3. We come now to verses 13 through 16 of this morning. Mind you, and for some of you maybe for the first time, <clears throat> Uh, that you're visiting with us, that Peter's writing to first century Christians who were an oppressed minority, and they were experiencing tremendous uh, difficulty for their faith. <clears throat> and we've been following what he's saying to them, and we arrived this morning now in chapter 3. He speaks directly to them in verse 13. He says, Now, who is there to harm you <clears throat> if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is the word of our Lord. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Thank you. Have a seat. I don't know when it was the last time that you read the testimony of, of some Christian martyrs, maybe from Fox's Book of Martyrs or something, but I did this last week as I was preparing for this passage, and it's humbling. It's humbling to compare their suffering with ours. Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, responding to persecution and thinking about responding to persecution is necessary uh, all the time, whatever our society is doing. Paul warned when he wrote, the apostle, he said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's just a fact that remains true throughout the history of the people of God. Now, I would say, and despite what we've experienced, that we are not yet quite at this stage of intensity. That is the intensity that Peter's original readers were experiencing. But an anti-Christian sentiment is clearly growing within our culture at a rapid pace. And um, should it become uh, enthroned or entrenched in our legal system, our laws, then we'll really begin to feel uh, the sort of heat that, uh, that our brothers and sisters have felt then and others have felt throughout history. Now, you know, if you've been here with us, that, that throughout the letter, Peter has touched on the, the topic of suffering for the faith. He's touched on, on the topic of persecution. But now in verses 13 through 16, he just, he's not touching on it anymore. He just brings it front and center to them. And he wants to help them. He wants to help us. And in and and these verses, what Peter does is he helps prepare his readers. He helps prepare you and me for hostility by equipping God's people with several defenses. Five defenses against hostility. Not ways of escaping hostility. Not ways of running or, or hiding from persecution, but f five ways of being sustained and facing and living in the context of hostility because that's what Peter's saying. There's no way they could flee it. And so that's what we look at these, this morning, these five different defenses to help us live in a culture that's becoming more and more hostile. All of them <clears throat> flow from the benefits of what Christ Jesus has gained for us through his sufferings on the cross and through his resurrection. So we have to always keep that in mind as we make our way through them. Now, the first one, the first uh, defense, uh, remain zealous for what is good. It flows very closely from verse 12. You might remember, if you were here last week, that in verse 12, what Peter was doing is he was citing Psalm 34, which promises that the Lord's favor <coughs> is on the righteous, but he will punish evildoers. And now what, P what Peter does is he draws an inference from that statement 
as he begins to write in verse 13. So it's almost like it would be something like this when he says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, verse 12, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It follows, therefore, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That's the relationship uh, of what he's writing here between these two phrases. Um, This is a rhetorical question, of course, and he doesn't state the answer outright. He uses the rhetorical question to get them thinking, get you and me thinking. How does this relate to what he just said from Psalm 34? Well, what's the answer? Who is there to harm us? Somebody might say, all kinds of people could harm us. But I think Peter's answer, the implication is no one. But in what sense? In what sense is there no one to harm us if we remain zealous for what is good? And again, zealous here is the idea of being fervent, being passionate about doing good. Is Peter saying this, that some take it? Is he saying, look, being zealous for what is good disarms those who would harm you. So who would harm you if you just excel at doing good? Well, he has alluded to something like that earlier, didn't he, in chapter 2, 14. In fact, he says that's why God set up government. Chapter 2, 14, that governors are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So it could be that, but we, well, we know that's not how government always works, is it? And we also know what Peter's been saying throughout is that, indeed, he knows they are suffering. So while that may be part of what he's getting at, and it's possible, but I think that Peter is thinking something different. He acknowledges they are suffering. In fact, the next statement, he says, even if you should suffer, he knows they will suffer for doing good. Well, I think Peter's primarily speaking in ultimate terms. What I mean is he's thinking about uh, the end. He's saying, look, in the end of all things, When all people stand before God, righteousness is rewarded. The wicked will be punished. Who can harm you? Who can do any lasting harm to you? Uh, I think this is the, the idea that in this life we may suffer, yes, for doing good. But no final, ultimate harm can come to us. That is, nothing can change our destiny as the people of God. I think this is the same train of thought that was common among the apostles. This is how Paul wrote when he wrote that beautiful chapter, Romans chapter 8. Well, Paul acknowledges suffering there as a Christian. And Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, though, who can be against this? Well, again, someone says all kinds of people. But he said, no, ultimately, who can be truly against this? Who can change anything that God wants to do for us? And the idea is, no one, you see. In Romans 8, he goes on down. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or or danger or sword? As it is written, and he quotes from the scriptures, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Obviously, Paul understands the people of God will will be persecuted. They will suffer. But he says, no, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord, you see. And so when Peter says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In the end, this is what he means. Ultimately, because Christ is with us, no one can change our status before God, our eternal inheritance. No one could divorce us from Christ and his love. He will stay with us throughout this life, you see. And so we have a hope And Peter's been accentuating that hope since chapter 1. An inheritance, a resurrection. We have a living hope, he said. And so we have a hope that transcends the circumstances of this life. That's what Peter, uh, excuse me, what Paul said earlier in Romans chapter 8, I think is a beautiful verse 
to reflect on as we finish this first uh, defense. He says, we are joint heirs. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Think of that. All that is His in eternity. We are joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So Peter doesn't, he's not trying to say no one's going to ever harm you. He's saying you may suffer in this life, but no one can touch what you have in Christ Jesus. No ultimate harm can come to you. And so listen, when the world gets hostile and the heat gets on, it's not a time for us to dim the light. (laughs) We, We need the light all the more. That is, people need the light. So remain zealous, he says. Remain passionate for doing good rather than withdrawing. Don't run to the hills and buy 25 guns, you know. You know, he says, you you remain zealous for doing good. Do good to all while we have opportunity, says Paul, especially those of the faith. And in fact, this is the fruit of being saved by our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ in, in, in Titus book of Titus chapter 2, Paul sums up salvation in this way. He says, He, that is, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now, watch this. Who are zealous for good works. That's exactly what Peter's saying. And he says, Paul says, We've been redeemed that we might be zealous for good works. And so when the heat is on, we don't dim the light. We remember the greater cause is always what? To see someone come to faith in Christ. So persevere in, in, in doing good. Uh, heaven rules. He's in control. Now, persevere in doing good. The second defense is something we are to remember. And he says in the next verse, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for, the, for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And so the second uh, defense is, is something we are to remember, something we are to keep in mind. That is that should we suffer, that is to be blessed. Uh, once again, this affirms that Peter's not in, uh, intimating in any way that we won't suffer if we're zealous for good works. We will suffer, but he doesn't want Christians, doesn't want his readers to think that this is just a constant sort of experience. So he uses a rare form of the verb here, uh, a form of the verb that, that, brings, that brings the idea that this won't be constant, but it may come upon you. It may come upon you. Indeed, we won't always be persecuted at every turn, every place, every time, but it may come upon us. And then the tense in which the ESV translates uh, Uh, you will be blessed, this sort of future idea, you will be blessed. It's it's not accurate. They did a better job in chapter 4, 14, because there's actually no verb. It's it's really an exclamation. The way it reads is, should you suffer, should that come about, blessed. That's all it says, blessed. And so the emphasis is not on the future, you'll be blessed, not here. The emphasis is on your present experience right now. Should you suffer, For Christ's sake, for righteousness, that will be in you a blessed moment. That will be a blessed experience when that happens. They translate it that way in chapter 414. They should have just kept it consistent. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, you see, right now. Not you will in the future. That's a blessed experience. I know that sounds like a contradiction, right? It doesn't sound right, you know. Uh, to, to suffer is to experience blessing. <laughs> um, but he's not talking about all suffering here. He's not talking about various pains or diseases or hurts that we go through in life. He's talking about what? Suffering because of your love for Jesus. Suffering because of your beliefs. Suffering because of your Christian ethics that flow from the life and person of Christ. That's what he's talking about. He says, when you suffer with Christ, that will be a moment of experiencing blessedness. In other words, these experiences engender a state of blessedness. And the word that he uses for blessed 
Makarios is one that emphasizes the, the, the experience of happiness. You say, you gotta be pulling my leg. No, I'm not. Uh, think about Paul and Silas. What were they doing in prison? Singing, worshiping. Think about Peter and those who were arrested with them. They were given a solid whipping and sent home. And what did it say? That they rejoice. Why? Because they, they considered it blessed to be what? Counted worthy to suffer with Christ, you know. And so it is a blessed experience we can't have until the moment occurs. That moment comes where you suffer with Christ. And that will be what? To be blessed. <laughs> it will be to experience the joy of associ being associated with the Lord Jesus uh, and of course, this is what our, our Lord taught himself. Much of what Peter says, he draws from the teachings of Jesus. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, <clears throat> chapter 5, verse 10 of Matthew, he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Listen to this. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven and blessed are you when others revile you, when others slander you, say bad things about you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, says Jesus, because you love me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And here Jesus gives three reasons that we'll, we should feel blessed and will feel blessed if we find ourselves in that moment. First of all, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he said, he said, it's a hallmark of the fact that you're headed for heaven. <laughs> this is what happens, says Jesus, to people who are on the way to heaven. So if it happens to you, guess what? <laughs> you're on your way to heaven. You know, so, so he says, it's a hallmark uh, of what you're supposed to experience. And you will sense that, uh, that inner joy. Secondly, you'll be rewarded in heaven. And thirdly, it's an honor to be equated with the prophets of God to be put in that same list along with them, you say. I know those are hard words, beloved. How can we accept things like that? Peter's gotten into our kitchen here in the last couple of weeks, you know. It's getting pretty intense of what he's saying. And I get it. I guess it's hard. But I'm going to tell you this morning that only as you have a deepening confidence in the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, only as you are more and more convinced about the reality and the truthfulness of what it means to be a Christian, what you possess in Christ Jesus, only then will statements like this begin to ring true in your head. And so it, one flows from the other. The, the, the pressure comes on, and, and some are going to turn the light down and pull away. Uh, when the pressure comes on, we're to keep the light up, and we're going to experience whatever God wants us to experience to go through, and we will experience the joy of being associated with Jesus at that time. You know, again, it's a hallmark of the fact you're on the right road. It's like when you take a trip somewhere, and, and, and you're, it's a, you're going up in the mountains, and you're told it's supposed to snow on the way. So when you get, uh, you're going up Highway 80, and guess what? It's snowing. That's great. Why? Because you're on Highway 80 where you're supposed to be. If what you see is palm trees, you're in trouble, right? You're not on the right road. And so that's what he says here. Uh, to suffer is to be blessed. Remember that. Um, but it's, again, it's, 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 it's a conviction that we must have about the truthfulness of what Jesus said is at the end of that mountainous, snowy road, you see, and being convinced of that. And as we've seen already, that's not something you do once for your life for all. It's something we, we need to meditate on. That's why we come together and build each other up and encourage one another uh, the early church father, Tertullian, uh, uh, writing in a time of persecution, writing about imprisonment, he said this, he said, the leg does not feel the chain if the mind is in heaven. The leg does not feel the chain if the mind is in heaven. And they spoke from experience. And so the question for you and me is what? Where's your mind? Is it on potentially what might happen to your leg? <laughs> or is our mind taking us up, our thoughts, taking us up further and further, deeper and deeper into what God has promised for us. So, to suffer is to be blessed, remain zealous for good. Thirdly and fourthly, these two come together because what Peter does next is he draws two implications from what he just said. 
To suffer is to be blessed. To be persecuted for righteousness' sake is to be blessed. And so he, he draws two implications from this. And I think they are the main point, the central point in these verses, verses 13 through 16. They're both stated as commands, both stated as imperatives. They are what? Have no fear, don't fear them, and sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Those two imperatives flow from uh, what it is when he says to suffer is to be blessed. Now, Peter is quoting from Isaiah 8. It's, it is, uh, it's clear that that's what he's doing. And this is how Isaiah 8 reads. When the prophet Isaiah wrote Isaiah chapter 8, uh, the people of God uh, were under duress and they were fearing a great invasion by the Assyrian army. And they were hearing rumors that they were going to be destroyed and this and that and the other thing was being gossiped around. They were lacking faith in God and his promise of deliverance. And so the, pro the prophet was told by God this in Isaiah chapter 8, in the middle of verse 12, he said to him, Tell them this, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And so Peter's drawing from those words as he writes to his original readers and to you and me. And it's clear that what Isaiah does is he expresses a contrast there. A contrast between what? The fear of man and the fear of God. He said, don't fear, don't fear man. Let him, let God be the one whom you fear and so forth. That's the point that the, the prophet Isaiah is making there. Both of those things is what Peter is applying in his writings in verses 14 and 15. But the translations are all over the place. If you have the NIV, it says one thing, ESV, New American Standard, and the reason is some are built upon the Hebrew of Isaiah and others are built on the Greek of the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so the NIV reads, fear what they fear, which sounded like what I read from Isaiah. And the, uh, the ESV, you see here, it says, have no fear of them. New American Standard, do not fear their intimidation. But I think that the, the, the Greek of Peter's writing favors the second. This idea here, do not fear them. Do not fear their intimidation. Don't fear what they can do to you. Uh, that's, uh, that's the point that Peter is driving here. Don't allow yourself to be gripped by this fear, overcome by this fear. And why is that? Because you start doing uh, some wrong things. You start making rash decisions, don't you, when you're afraid of something. There's a right fear, right? The, the right kind of fear that's a warning, and so we make decisions. But there's this fear that overtakes us, that, over, that controls us, overcomes us. And we start making bad choices, about our life, about where we, what we're going to do, how we're going to respond, what, which direction are we going to head. He says, don't be gripped by this fear. Don't be troubled. That's the second word he uses. And that's a word that means don't be agitated or, or stirred up. Or don't tremble is another translation of it. It's kind of like the, you take a glass of water and you shake it up. He's saying, don't, don't be like that water on the inside that's kind of splashing left and right, back and forth. Don't let your emotions start eating you up internally, is, is what the word's saying. So I'm so glad, I'm so glad it's Peter who's telling us this, so none of us will have the impression that we need to be super Christians. Because there was a time when Peter did exactly what he's telling you and me here not to do, Right? Yes, he was overcome by fear. He was gripped by fear on the night that Jesus was arrested, and he trembled. He trembled before a 13-year-old girl, and he denied he knew Jesus to her and to others. Three times he denied he knew Jesus. So Peter is speaking to us from experience, and he's saying, look, do not be overcome by fear. Don't, don't let it get into your inside and agitate you. And so we want to ask, so, so what are we to do? This is the complimentary statement, the positive one. So sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. You see, that's how these two things work together. Don't be gripped by fear. So what do I do, Peter? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's a better and clearer translation of what we have there in the ESV. The ESV says honor, but the idea again is sanctify, set apart Christ 
as Lord in your hearts. That's a very literal translation. And so there, there are differences here between what Peter is saying, how he's saying it, and the way Isaiah said it I, that I quoted earlier. But I want to just point some of those things out. First of all, in Isaiah, uh, the Lord that we are to fear is clearly whom? It's clearly Yahweh. It's God. Almighty God. And, and Peter, just like all the other New Testament authors, has no problem equating Messiah Jesus with Yahweh, Almighty God. He applies it to Christ. After all, Jesus did himself. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, you see. But Peter's emphasis is not on, you need to recognize Christ's deity. That's not what he's getting at. His emphasis is not on recognizing that he is the Lord, but that treating him as Lord in your heart. That's the idea of sanctify. Set him apart as the Lord in your heart. He adds in your heart, which Isaiah doesn't have. He's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not talking about conversion. Who is he writing to? He's, he's writing to Christians. We know that Christ is Lord, and nothing we ever say or do or think will ever change that. He is the Lord. But he's saying you need to treat him as the Lord in your heart, you see need to set him up high above anyone else in your heart. Now, it may be that some of you do need to, to recognize Christ as Lord right now, initially, because that is how the Christian life begins. Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that Christ, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, you see. So it may be that for some of you, he needs to essentially have that place come into your life and you just, you express that to him, you speak to him. But here Peter's talking to Christians, you see, who like the ancient um, Israelites were fearing forces and power and things that may happen. And, 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 and Isaiah said, who's in charge here? Fear him, okay? Fear the one who's in control of everything. Let him be your dread, is what he's saying. And so Peter retouches, of course, uh, on, on a theme that uh, he's been talking about throughout his letter, right? Didn't he say in chap- chapter 2, 17, he said, honor everyone, but fear God, right? In chapter 1, 17, he said, if you, if you regard God as Father in heaven, you call him Father, Father, then what? Live your life in fear before him and during your your exile here. That's what he's talking about. Not the fear as a Christian of being cut off if you, don't, if you don't do right today, but the fear of offending the Almighty, the fear of bringing on the discipline of God in your life. Of, he's your father and, and so forth. The fear of offending him. Fear him. And this is what Jesus taught. See, to not be gripped by fear, we must what? We must Sanctify Christ in our hearts. Why? Because the fear of God casts out the fear of man. And when the fear of man is cast out, then you have hope, and hope sustains. That's the, that's the progress here. That's the way this works out in our experience in the Christian life. Uh, Jesus said as much, and he was a lot clearer about it. <laughs> this is what Jesus said. Again, these are echoes in, 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 of Jesus' teaching in, In Peter's writing, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, Jesus was talking to his disciples who were being maligned, you know, and he said, just like Jesus was being maligned, he says, have no fear of them, Matthew 10, 26, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed. There's no secrets. It's all going to be brought out into the open, you know, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, you go say it in the light, in which you hear whispered, Proclaim it on the housetops. What's he saying? Uh, Remain zealous for what is good. Keep preaching the truth. And do not fear those who kill the body. Wow, he takes it to the extreme, right? This is beyond don't fear those who can cause you to lose your job. This is beyond those, don't fear those who could, uh, you know, ruin your reputation in public. This is... Don't fear those who could kill you even. Don't fear them. Do not fear those who could kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, 
fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he, he assures them to think of life as under the sovereignty of God, including their suffering. When he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? They're really inexpensive little things in their day, right? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Not apart from your father knowing, but apart from your father, meaning willing it. He's in control of even the death of a sparrow. And then he applies it to them and says, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. God knows them. He knows how many. Then he goes on and says, fear not. Fear not, therefore. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. You mean more to God than a million sparrows. (laughs) And he knows every hair on your head. And then he goes on to say, well, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. There's ultimate consequences here. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so what? What's he saying? He's saying you can cast out fear of man, even the worst sort of fear of man, the dread of death, if you replace it with the fear of God. Fear him who has authority not over just your body, but body and soul. And that's that's what Peter is getting at. He's drawing from the teachings of Jesus throughout this whole book. The fear of the Lord has been a, 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 a very important theme that's been underlying everything that Peter has been saying. You say, well, how does that help me? How does that help me live in a way that is honorable? Peter says, live honorable lives. Well, because the fear of God is not just a sort of religious thing, something you feel on Sundays, something you acknowledge on Sundays. The fear of God affects how you live 24-7. You see, if you fear God, right, then, then there's, there's things you fear doing Monday through Saturday. There's places you fear going. There's things you fear saying. There's things you fear watching. There's things, there's people you fear being associated with or agreeing with. Why? Because you're on his team. (laughs) You fear God. And because you fear God, you don't engage in those things. So it's, it's a very practical thing. And so that's what Peter's telling us. Furthermore, if the one we fear is in control, sparrows, hairs on your head, then ultimately if we sanctify him as Lord in our hearts, he doesn't mean just recognize him as your authority and therefore live for him. That's part of it, the fear of the Lord. But also remember, he's in control still. In fact, the very next verse in Peter, verse 17 meaning the next one after 16 here, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be what? God's will. He acknowledges that whatever suffering they may experience, it has to be God's will. Or you simply would not experience it. So sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Scripture says you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. And then lastly, he says, be prepared to answer. This is the fifth defense. Don't be caught off guard. (laughs) Uh, Be prepared to answer. Uh, Second half of verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now this flows right out of what he just said. In other words, the the logic is this way. To sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts involves uh, the duty to witness, the duty to testify. So prepare for it. If you've set him up as Lord in your heart, you know he's your Lord, then be prepared to explain that, man. That's what he's saying here. It's part of it. Now a lot of scholars point out that that word there, defense, to make a defense, apologia, uh, which we hear the English apologetics and so forth. A lot of scholars point out that that was a technical term used at times 
uh, to refer to formal public hearings. In other words, some say that Peter might have had in the mind that he knows that some of them are going to be arrested. And so they're going to arrest you and you're going to have a public hearing. You better be prepared, prepared to give an answer. Why? Peter went through that. He was arrested. And so maybe Peter is getting at that. But Peter goes on to say what? A defense against anyone. So we can't limit it to that. Really, anyone. What Peter's saying, it may include be prepared to stand before a judge and, and, and make a defense for the hope that is in you. Explain it. But he says you ought to be prepared for any kind of circumstance in which you find yourself pressured and you need to explain. Why are you Christian? Why do you live the way you do? You know, Be prepared for that in advance. You can see how that would be a defense. How would that be a defense? Because it helps me, it helps me uh, live in the present tense and without this anxiety. Whoa, I hope no one ever asks me anything. You know? Versus I'm ready to some degree. I've prepared. So... Let's prepare. Reminds me, when I was reading it, <laughs> of the uh, Boy Scouts motto. I was in the Boy Scouts as a boy. What? Be prepared is the motto. When you go on a one-week hike, be prepared. Don't just take your shorts, man. Be prepared for a hike. Be prepared for what you're going to drink. Be prepared for starting a fire. Where are you going to sleep? How are you going to sleep on the ground? Be prepared was the motto. And what Peter's saying here is suffering is inevitable. It's not constant, but it may it come upon you. When it does, if you have sanctified Christ as Lord in your heart, prepare yourself to give a testimony, you see. To give a reason for the hope that is in you. That's what he's talking about. To explain. Uh, again, this doesn't mean that you should be prepared to answer every sort of technical question by every kind of critic that there could possibly be. No one is prepared like that. It's not that. That's not what he's getting at. And in fact, you should feel safe if you get stumped by somebody to just simply say, believe it or not, say, I don't know. But I would love to keep this discussion going, so let me get back to you. Let me, let me think about it. Yeah. Then call one of the other elders and ask them, and they'll help you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know is a safe answer when you don't know, right? And so he's not saying you should know everything, but he's saying be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. What do those words mean? The reason is the word logon. He's talking here about give a rational explanation. Now, sometimes people talk about the faith as if it's irrational, meaning the faith doesn't involve thinking. And sometimes even people put faith and reason as, as, as opposed to each other. But that's not the case. The Christian faith, beloved, is not a leap into the dark. It is not belief without any basis. It is belief based upon the testimony of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ who laid down their lives within just a couple of weeks of having deserted him because they saw him raised from the dead. Paul says, and we're going to celebrate that next week, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It was written centuries before. That's a defense there too. And he was buried, meaning what? He was really dead. And then lastly, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 at one time. Many who are still alive, says Paul. And lastly, he appeared to me you see so our faith is rational and we can reason uh, with people as to the basis of what our hope is that is our hope you see and we shouldn't set those things against each other it was uh, it was Paul we, we read in the book of Acts in chapter 17 you remember what it said it said he reasoned with them from the scriptures he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He sought to persuade them, we're told, from the scriptures. That doesn't mean that Paul was a rationalist, somebody who believed that you could reason your way into the kingdom of God. It was John Lennox who really helped me with this. John Lennox is an apologist. He's a, a, a British mathematician, a very intelligent man. He's debated a lot of the modern atheists of our own time. And it was John Lennox who pointed out to me through some of his writings about this thing about faith and reason. And what he said was, Paul used reason, but he trusted God. 
And the mistake many Christians make is they want to trust reason and use God. <laughs> no, you can't trust reason. Why? Because you can't reason people into the kingdom. But you can use reason. You could explain things. Because when God opens our eyes, He does open our eyes to someone, Christ, to something raised from the dead. And so we can reason with people. So when he says, be prepared, you see, what's he saying? Be prepared to give a rational explanation for why you have the hope of the resurrection in your heart. Be ready to explain that. That's the, the crux. That's the, that is it. That is the foundation of the Christian faith. And then when you do it, he says, do it with the right attitude. <laughs> do it in a certain manner. I'm back to, to, um, to 1 Peter Verse 15, make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, the way, the manner in which we testify to Christ is also important to Christ. The manner in which we speak, the word gentleness is a word that means humility. It takes humility to respond to hostile questioning, doesn't it? to hostile accusations. It takes humility to return good for evil and not just become insulting as you try to communicate. Beloved, here's our job. Our job is simply this. Our job is to communicate the core truths of the gospel as the basis for our hope and to do it with humility and gentleness with people. God takes it from there. That's all you do. That's all you have to do. Conversion, salvation, all that comes from the Lord. Now the second word, when he says, um, do so with gentleness and respect, uh, that's that word that is, uh, he's been using throughout his writing. It's the word for fear. And we've said before, throughout his writing, fear is the attitude we should have for, towards God. And so I don't think Peter's saying this is how you treat people when you evangelize them. Uh, speak to them with humility and fear. Uh, you see, he's, I think he has God in mind again like he did earlier. When you are witnessing to others, giving a testimony, an explanation for the hope that's in your heart, do so with humility, a gentleness, and keep the fear of the Lord in mind. Be mindful of the Lord. Don't cross over and start insulting these people. Don't cross over and start beating him up. Don't return evil with evil, you see. Fear the Lord as you gently speak to others. Keep God in mind. And that Peter means this, I think, is made clear by what he says next when he says having a clear conscience. In other words, your conscience has to be clear as you're witnessing and testifying to people, not only of your life, but what he's saying is have a clear conscience that you're not crossing over into insulting and trying to return evil for evil, but instead you're explaining your hope with gentleness no matter what they do. So maintain a clear conscience as you seek to bring the good news of the gospel to others. You know, beloved, I think, I think we, we should have a modest, a modest goal for all of you this week, uh, and if not this week, very soon, should be to simply ask yourself, when was the last time I wrote out my testimony? Could I explain what it was I believed, when I believed it, how I came to believe it, and what's changed in my life? Uh, be prepared. Be prepared to give a rational explanation for why you hope. That's all Peter's saying here. And so a, a, a modest goal would be simply that, to, well, to rewrite out your testimony, think back. What do you struggle with the most? Let me put it this way. Do you struggle most with the content of the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, be prepared with it then. We have tons of tools around here. We're dying with tools. We got all kinds of things that will explain the gospel to you, right? So, okay, you say, I'm rusty on the gospel. Well, that's all right. Don't stay, though. What is, so what's your greatest struggle, the content of the gospel or recalling how it is you came to faith, a testimony? Do you have a testimony? Maybe this will help clarify things for you. Or is it 
Or is it the fear, overcome fear with what? I need to sanctify Christ as Lord. I need to remind myself that he's in charge here. And, or is it what? Is it your attitude? I have a tendency to turn all evangelistic situations into arguments. Well, then, then, then you be prepared to not do that anymore, okay? So that my, my exhortation is, here's a modest goal. Let's all take a step at being better prepared to just explain what is the gospel and why do I have hope? That's it. It's not become some great apologist and have an answer for every scientist, okay? It's explain yourself. God does everything else. He brings about the light, a conversion. And why should we do this? This is what he says at the end of the verse. So that when you are slandered, he admits you people are gonna say things wrong about you, those who revile your good behavior, what are, they, what are they complaining about? How, the, how you keep returning good for evil. <laughs> how you just stay good. When they revile what you're doing, that they may be put to shame. Now we don't know exactly if Peter meant put to shame in this life or he means in the end when you're vindicated. Some will believe, he told us earlier, and they'll glorify God, but some may not and they'll be put to shame. So this is what we have here. This is what Peter's given us, these defenses uh, to use. Not to escape persecution, not to run from it, not to, uh, not to be safe from it in any, in any foolish sort of sense, but it's how to live in the context of a hostile world. It's what are we to do as a Christ, uh, animosity is growing against Christianity. Well, don't turn the light down. Remain zealous for what is good. You say, but that might lead to suffering. Well, then remember this. To suffer is to be blessed. You say, well, how can I get my head around that? I'm afraid of these people. Stop being gripped by fear and sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Okay, but then what do I say? Well, prepare, would you? That's what Peter's saying here. Be prepared. And just sit down and reflect on how will you testify to Christ? I understand all this is hard. I understand it's not easy to hear these things. Um, but uh, they are becoming more necessary. And I can tell you, you're going to need these if you haven't already. Some of you are probably already reflecting on times right now when you can say, I wasn't prepared. Peter's right. I wasn't prepared. Well, I can tell you again, you're going to need this maybe more than ever before. God can work through it, beloved. And all of this flows from what? From being convinced, being convinced in the deepest parts of your hearts that the benefits of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, that they are real, that you are indeed uh, a member of a spiritual household, that you have indeed been chosen before the foundation of the world, sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled with the blood of Christ, that you are being built up upon the cornerstone, that you are God's God's children believing that you have been set free from the bondage of sin. You see, it's being convinced of these and you have an inheritance that lies ahead for you. It's being more and more convinced of this that you, I think, will be enabled to stand when that hour comes because the moment will come. And this is how Paul lived. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, the memorable statements when he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, meaning I don't live alone on my own strength. Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith. By faith, trusting what? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we would say, and faith in all the implications that flow from that, all the benefits that flow from the fact that God loved you, gave his son, he loves you, gave himself for you. And that's why we gather weekly. That's why we need each other. It's hard to what? Do this for yourself. But we come to hear the word of God and to buffet each other and have his grace minister to each of us. Our lives, beloved, if I would boil it down to what Peter's been saying, our lives in a hostile context, our lives should be controlled by spiritual realities and thoughts, thoughts about the world to come. That's what he's been telling us since chapter one. Our lives, our thoughts should be controlled by spiritual realities 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 and thoughts 
about the world to come. You know what unbelievers do? Unbelievers do everything that he or she can to not think of life beyond this world, to pretend there's nothing coming, to not think of a judgment, to not think of eternity. We should be on the other end of the spectrum, do all we can <laughs> to have our lives controlled by spiritual truths and thoughts of the world to come. Right? The leg doesn't feel the chain, says, says the uh, church father, Tertullian, when the mind is in heaven. And so let's help each other even now as we finish with the Lord's Supper and with song. We're going to sing this song, and the lyrics are going to go like this. The night is dark, but I'm not forsaken. For by my side the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. To this I hold. My shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome. Yet not I, what's the last part, but through Christ in me. Lord, we bless you and praise you. We look for strength in our weakness. We look for power. We look for hope. We seek your grace. We need your help, Lord. It's, at times we feel so frail. We feel overcome. We feel threatened. And some of our hearts are riddled, Lord, with that uh, splashing around of our emotions back and forth. Help us, God, to calmly sit before you and to receive your truth, Lord. May it fill our hearts. May it transform our, our lives Help us to live, dear God, with our mind in the world to come. And I pray, Lord, that as we come to the supper, that that's exactly what you minister to us as we proclaim Christ's death until he returns. We love you, Lord. So meet us in your mercy, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.